Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So good. Such a great day at the office. (laughs) Good. That's always a good answer to that question. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm good. I just had to run home and back in record time because I realized once I got to my office that half of what I needed to record today's interview was still at my house. So yay, motorcycles. Um, Mom, I was safe. I wore a helmet. Don't worry. Uh, important. I'm glad you made it back just in time. Just in time, like two minutes before our producer was going to get really, really mad at me. Oh, wait. Oh, wait, that's you. That's you. <laughs> that's me. I was going to get really upset with myself. Well, we want to welcome to today's episode of The Broken Banquet, our friend Chris. We have, a, I think, a mutual friend, John Woodward, who has, we've interviewed him for this podcast. We have, he's been a co-host for a couple of episodes of our podcast. And at some point over the last few months, uh, he reached out, I think, first to Ashley and said, hey, I know somebody that you guys really should talk to. So we're thankful for John. And Chris, we're thankful for you. Thanks for uh, being on the Broken Banquet. Yeah, thanks for for asking. When when John, uh, when I ran into him at a conference, he said, "Oh, I think you'd be you, you need to meet these guys. You, you you have a story that they would really like to hear." And I remember the first time I met John, we hosted him at our house in Bosnia, and I was impressed with his love of trains and the amount of coffee he could drink in a culture that <laughs> appreciates coffee. That that man can put it down. He sure can. Whenever he stays at my house, uh, I always have to, you know, stock up to make sure that we have enough to keep him in stock while he's there. So I was under the impression that he had enjoyed his trip to Costa Rica to work with us so much because of us. But now I'm starting to wonder if maybe it was just because of the copious amounts of amounts of coffee that we provided for him. It, It could be both. It could be both. Could be both. Yeah. Well, no, they're kind of related. You know how much he loves Yolanda. That's why. Right. It's because he loves my wife and my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Enough, uh, enough about John Woodward. Well, Chris, I really enjoyed talking with you over the phone, just hearing your story and uh, getting to know some of your background. So I wish I had had a, a device recording during that phone call because there was just so much goodness that I wanted our listeners and Will to be able to hear. So do you want to start by just uh, telling us a little bit about who you are and um, your call story of, of how you ended up uh, in the mission field? You bet. Uh, my story has a bunch of bumps and bruises. It's a, We have a God that, that redeems things. And so I think that's the, the fun part. And honestly, to, to have open ears to to ask the questions, to be able to tell the story is a blessing to me too, just to remember what God has called us to and, and how he never, he's pretty faithful. Mm-hmm. I'll say I, I grew up a, as a missionary kid um, in South America. My parents were missionaries in Santiago, Chile, or Santiago, Chile, depending on if, mm-hmm. how you want to pronounce it. Um, it was there until I was about 11. 
moved back to uh, Nebraska when my dad told me we were moving to Nebraska. I literally thought like covered wagons because that's on the map of America that we had. It was like, there was a picture. (laughs) So my brother and I were like super excited. Like, Hey, we're going to live in the, you know, wild West. That wasn't quite what it was. Um, and spent a few years transitioning there. My dad was a missions prof and then moved down to Joplin, Missouri, where my parents uh, ran a ministry called literature and teaching ministries that helped people coordinate and translate uh, Christian literature um, all over the world. It's a pretty amazing organization um, that he just retired and passed on. So did my high school here in, in Joplin, spent a little bit of time at a Christian college, and then actually went to into the medical field. I was a surgical assistant. I uh, met my wife before that and signed on with a company that sent us around the United States to work at uh, hospitals that had shortages. Grew up pretty fast during that time. I always had a faith, but during that season of life, wasn't active in it, making good money, having lots of fun, but emptier than I've ever felt too. And just felt like, you know, I, I lived as a missionary kid with parents that weren't wealthy, but they were full. They had everything that they ever wanted. They were joyful all the time. Not all the time, you know, but they had joy and I was missing that. And so we were in Bellingham, Washington. That's like literally what heaven is going to look like. Best job, <laughs> just having so much fun, but felt empty and heard God calling us back to Joplin, Missouri. And if any listeners are in Joplin, you understand it's, it's not Bellingham. <laughs> yeah. And God, why? Like, why would you call us back there? And there was all kinds of reasons, but basically... He wanted to, us both, my wife and I, to make our faith our own and and bringing us back to some of those roots that we needed to take care of and get connected with our home church here that is, I've been parts of different churches, but this church really has a heart for the world. And so came back, got all kinds of roots dug up and put back where they needed to be and wounds healed and didn't know what we were getting ready for, but then when uh, we got back involved with my home church, they asked us if we would like to go on a short-term trip, a uh, missions trip to India. And sure, you know, I'm a missionary kid. I, I know that there's a need. I had a heart for the, you know, the lost, um, but never, never really pictured myself going overseas. But sure, this is fun. They needed uh, medical. It was part of the missions trip was a medical trip. So I said yes, went to India and just mind blown. I mean, I lived in a big city, but you go to into a village of a million people in India and zero people have heard of Jesus. And you're trying to help somebody with their knee pain or, you know, make connections for the missionaries, just whatever. And I came, we came back from that trip, just wrecked understanding they, I mean, they're seeing baptism, they're seeing all kinds of really cool stuff. What could I serve? It was more for us just to have our eyes opened and really struggled that that year after we got back to know like what 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 am I doing? I was still in the medical profession, and my wife was an English professor. And so the next year, when they asked us to go on another trip to Taiwan, I was like, man, I don't I don't know. Like last year was great, but I don't know if I served anything. It was just kind of wrecked me. But the purpose of this trip to Taiwan it was just to pray. It was just a prayer trip to to support the the workers that were there. I thought, well, okay, we can pray. And they, they were going to do some English uh, conversational classes. And my wife is an English professor. So it's like, okay, we'll go and see if, if we can't maybe make sense of some of the stuff that we that affected us so deeply in India. It was Taipei, Taiwan. So it's like New York City, fast forward. You, you don't even have to open a door. Like they all open for you. There's Wi-Fi everywhere. Uh, we were sitting in a high school class doing an English conversational bit. And we couldn't just outright share Jesus, but we could talk about 
uh, American traditions and holidays, which, you know, most, a lot of them have something to do with faith. And these kids knew English. Uh, they were juniors and seniors. And we had a group, Aubrey and I, my wife and I had a group of six. And, you know, 4th of July, fireworks, this, that. We get to Christmas and I said, yeah, you know, if any, do any of you know what Christmas, you know, what you do around Christmas? And like a lot of them, some of them knew Santa Claus and they've actually opened presents and stuff, even though they weren't Christians. Um, they knew what Christmas was. I said, well, as, as a Christian, you know, we, we actually celebrate the birth of Jesus um, on this day. And one of the kids said, who? And I looked at my wife and this kid who had an iPhone had never even heard his name. And I, and I had like 10 minutes left in the class. So it's like, okay, well, and I still have the drawing that I drew, uh, you know, a cross and an empty tomb and, wow. and the bell rings. And it was just, I mean, I, I could almost still hear the bell in my ears. Like I didn't finish like this, I got, but I have to go to the next class. Went to the next class. We skipped 4th of July, skipped things, skipped, went straight to Christmas. and actually got through, <laughs> got through Easter on that one. But both my wife and I walked away from that school just like, just shaken because I'm not a missionary kid. I, I know that there are people out there that don't know Jesus, but to meet a high school kid, not in some random village in the middle of nowhere, Google it. Like it, it, the, there's information out there about him. There's people around that can tell you, but not enough because it's a city of 6 million and there's just a handful of Christians and workers there. Mm-hmm. And so the testimony of the, the missionaries that we were there to serve was they were second career missionaries. And they realized that there were people that didn't know Jesus. They had the heart and through God's provision, the capability to share Jesus. And so why not? Mm -hmm. And so on the plane ride home, we just said, well, I have a testimony. I've been transformed by the gospel. Uh, If there's a way that I can do this full time and not just a week or two out of the year, then I feel like that's what God wants us to do in this season of our life. So we quit our jobs, sold our house and you know, asked our sending church, like, hey, we wanted to go back to Taiwan. I wanted to go find that right. kid and be like, yeah. hey, I, I, I want to finish the story. And there was a, a bit longer process that we went through with our home church. Our home church sent out teams to different fields that were unchurched, un, unreached. And they had a, a, a heart and a vision for Eastern Europe, for certain people groups in Eastern Europe that were unreached and un, unworked. And um, there was a, a resistance to us going there. Cause I thought, well, Europe, Europe's reached, like they've already had their chance. I want to go somewhere where you know, they haven't, they haven't heard yet, but they asked us to go on a survey trip to Bosnia and we said, yes. And when we went, we just, we fell in love with the people and mm-hmm. saw that, saw the need, um, the country of 4 million. There's only at that point, there was 700 known believers. The numbers actually gone down. And so it's just a, a tough place. And we did meet people that they, they had heard, the name Jesus, but had total different picture of what, what that meant or who he was. And so that, that kind of got us into really God just opened our hearts and fell in love with another culture, which I don't know if you guys have been able to do that, but that's probably one of the biggest gifts God gave to be able to fall in love with another culture in such a deep way. I'm just super grateful for that. But that's, that's how we got to joining the team that, that went to to Bosnia. I don't even know where to start. First of all, as the father of a missionary kid, she's only eight, so I'm not sure it really, it hasn't registered with her yet that she's a missionary kid, but I'm aware of the fact that she's a missionary kid. And so I was listening very closely. Chris, what I, what I love hearing about, I think when we were on the phone together and, and just now is 
the love of missions that your church has there in Joplin. And could you talk about what their vision for mission is and their relationships that they had with other missionaries, the relationships they have with you now, what their vision is for these relationships, like what that looks like for them? Yeah. Um, some historian is probably going to call in and, and say, hey, that story wasn't accurate. I'll, I'll tell the story like I know it. A long time ago, uh, there was a church um, in this area that was wanting to reach Missouri Southern State University is right, right next to College Heights' campus. And they previously were in like outside of town. They were wanting to actually focus on reaching the university. And so they were doing a capital campaign to build a, a church right by the, the university. And they reached out to one of the guys that I think had founded the original church who had moved to California and had wealth and asked for some help. And what he said is like, I'll build the building if you um, dedicate the, a certain percentage. And it was larger than most churches do to, towards missions. Like, well, I'll build the building if in your budget it is said that this amount goes towards global missions. And that's how the church got started. And it's called Shites Christian Church because it's right over, it looks over Missouri Southern State. And so it was just in the DNA from somebody's heart for missions mm -hmm. from the very beginning. And they stayed true to that. And through the years, it shifted and changed. Uh, back when we moved to Joplin, my dad was the missions director, brought in another guy, and it kind of just grew. And the elders have been praying about different areas in the world that they wanted to have an impact in. And it, it was all unreached and unworked places, so hard places. And so the church knew that if we're going to send teams there or individuals there, they need to be equipped and taken care of because this is it's tough stuff. And so they sent teams together. We were the first team they sent. They were raising up people that were passionate about evangelism, passionate about sharing their story, passionate about uh, doing hard things and being obedient, and then forming them as a team before they get into the furnace. Like, let's see if we can't, you know, put them in situations where the heat is high so they can figure some of those things out. And it's not a perfect system. Um, you know, the attrition rate almost, no matter what you do, is what it is. Um, but their heart was in the right place, and um, they've sent teams to really tough places um, and have continued to support them. And they're very, very committed to those people groups. So the whole church knows that their body is involved in this specific people group. And so... The, one of the projects I worked on at the church before I left was in their airlocks in between their, their atrium and the entryway. We, they hung flags uh, from like almost every country in the world. And then in their auditorium, they have every country represented. And a lot of people didn't like that. Um, you know, the American flag was there too, but it was really cool testimony of the church to say, hey, yeah, we're American and we, and we take care and serve our communities, but God is much bigger than that. And we are a part of a body that, you know, each one of these flags represents. And so that makes me so jealous because I've tried so hard to get like a permanent type display of our missions uh, with flags, with other cultural uh, paraphernalia together and, and to have that just permanently displayed and about as far as I can get or just are these beautiful banners. So we at least have banners with the photos of the people that we, that we are in relationship with and that we consider our family around the world. But, oh, I'm a little jealous about that. Well, what a great way to visualize. There's Acts 1-8 again. It's come up before, but, you know, to the ends of the earth. I think people need to see that because for some people, the ends of the earth is like the other side of the county. 
that they're in, you know, but there's definitely more to it than that. Yep. So was that, uh, I want to go back really quickly, the equipping and preparing process, that's something that, that was being done with these teams before they were going into the field to try and, and lower that sort of attrition factor. Right. Yes, it was. And is, um, we, we were the guinea pigs for sure. Like we were the first one they sent out. So we were on, uh, they have a, uh, a group called the 938 after Matthew 938, uh, the harvest field passage where they meet once a month. And these are people that are interested in going at some point, And they just walk through a journey of sometimes years of uh, having some leadership really way through like, Hey, these are th some things you can start working on. These are some red flags that we see. And it's just a, a mentoring group. And then they also have um, uh, another group after that, a group that uh, it's like an, uh, a residency that they do for like a nine month period where they're given assignments like, Hey, you, you need to not take, not drive your car for a month and take the public transport in town. Cause if that's a, a skill you need to learn, even though Joplin doesn't have a ton, they had to figure it out. They challenged them to share their testimony or a God store, Jesus story so many times in a month, just to, to get used to doing those things. Cause again, if you're not doing it here, mm -hmm. you're not going to go on the mission school of Lufthansa or, you know, Delta. And then all of a sudden have that skill when you land. And so um, they have intentional ways that they pour into, to people that have shown an interest and invest in them heavily so that when they go, they have that relationship and then they maintain those. We did some of that. We did some team formation before we went, but it, it's, it wasn't as robust as it is now. Um, I see some of the teams that have gone recently and think, I wonder if our story would have been a little different had we done that. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. I'm encouraged by the way that that's being done. Um, I think, and I may be wrong, but I think this is the first conversation we've had about this where someone has actually given us some pretty specific examples mm -hmm. of, of such a, like you said, a robust training program. That's really encouraging. Uh, it's scary sometimes to hear the stories of people who have been sent out into the field completely unprepared. Scary for them and mm -hmm. scary for the communities that they're being sent into. So I'm thankful for that. But I'm curious to know if, if, you, if your church is sending people into places, into countries where the number of believers can be counted in the hundreds, what is sort of, what's first contact there? Who, how are those relationships even starting? In our context, they did a pre-survey trip. This was before they even, even asked us, uh, some, one, a couple on our team uh, were the initiators and they were looking for uh, an unreached people group in Eastern Europe, specifically Muslim. And so that, there's not that many. So it was, you know, either Kosovo or, or Bosnia or Macedonian, you know, Kosovars, and there were some different places. And so they did a pre-survey trip. And one of the things that they were looking for was a mentor couple or a mentor missionary family. And they found one um, in, in Bosnia. And that was one of the main reasons why they chose that one instead of others, because they realized the, that it's two-sided though. They, they, they realized having a mentor couple that could help um, the adaptation process would again, help the attrition rate and not to spoon feed us, but to be able to at least, mm -hmm. you know, help us in that beginning stage. The other side of that though, was there was a lot of work going on. Not a lot. There was some work going on, but nothing was really showing 
um, and I hesitate to say like multiplication or just a ton of fruit, just the number was going down. And so uh, it was a curse and a blessing that they said, hey, go, but don't partner with an existing work. You have a mentor couple, but don't totally just jump in with an existing work. Mm-hmm. We want you to learn. So go mm-hmm. in and learn the language, learn the culture, and then start asking the question, God, what is it that's going to unleash the gospel in this constant context? Because the things that have been going, they could be good. They could be holy. They could be God, you know, purposed, but we want you to go in and really figure out how the gospel applies in this culture. And so that freedom with the mentor couple in place, I think was a, a good combo because we did feel free. I did my best to bless the work that was already going on and not to say, Hey, you're no good for me. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to do anything. I want to be a blessing, but my call was to do something that hasn't been done yet. And so that combo was scary at times and lonely at times, but gave us the freedom to really honestly get desperate enough Mm. to ask God, Hey, what do you want us to do? Where I think you go in before with a plan and Mm. you forget to ask him. Chris, why don't we move into uh, your story there in, in Eastern Europe? Just tell us some of that first month's years there. One of the hardest things we've ever had to do, but it was just so full of faith-stretching moments that were huge blessings. Because at the end of that, you you look back, and even if in the moment you don't sense it, like you look back and you just see his fingerprints all over everything, things in the moment where you'd be like, this sucks. Like, God, did you forget about us? But like, you look back and it's like, oh no, like well, I, I had my eyes in the wrong place. So we, I mean, we were fresh off the boat, obviously. I was in, in my early thirties, maybe 30. Um, and that, the team that we joined was too. And we were gung ho and we thought we knew we, what, what the world needed. And so having two strong personalities come together, it was, like, honestly, he's one of my best friends and actually is my team leader now. Um, we'll partner with him. We'll talk about that later. But that initial uh, year and a half together, I knew for certain I wanted to be around people like he and his wife. Their evidence, the evidence of, of their love for Jesus is just everywhere at a maximum intensity. But young bucks with different visions uh, kind of uh, and with different callings from our senders, it ended up, it was a good time, but the the... When we left, it didn't, it wasn't super pretty. Um, I love that that story actually has finality to it now that we're back together and can laugh about some of it and just see where God really grew us and our leadership and our service through that, that time. But yeah, about a year and a half into that, maybe not even a year and a half, we decided to move back down into the South to a city that offer, we could get student visas there. Because part of the thing while we were working was that we were doing all of our business in English because a lot of people that can speak English and we weren't getting the language learned to the level that we wanted to. And so decided we talked to another city in the middle of the country that said we could get student visas. I was like, well, that's perfect. I get a visa to be a student, learn the language. Like, that's great. Um, And we went off of their promise. So we moved again um, to the middle to Zenitsa and um, got there, went to the office for foreigners to fill out our visa paperwork. And she said, Oh wait, you don't know Bosnian. <laughs> you, this school is, it's, Ugh. it's like a university, you have, but it's all in Bosnia. It's not, you, you can't, you can't get a visa to learn the language. It was like, yeah, it's an interesting point of clarity. Cause I already moved. 
So ended up in, in that season really going to God and saying, okay, like, I know that we make mistakes all over the place, but really where, like, what did you do? What did I miss here? Cause I keep saying yes to you and feeling like I'm taking these big steps of faith and then like hit a brick wall. I feel like I'm missing something. And last minute got connected with a lawyer and said, Hey, I need to start an organization and we're going to do projects through that organization. And if we need to, we can put them through the government. I've, I've got some funding. We can do some humanitarian stuff kind of as a last ditch effort and started the paperwork and the office for foreigners, they said, basically, yeah, you have this window to do all of that in. So we rushed and got all this stuff done, put the paperwork on their, on their desk the day before the government totally shut down because there were some protests going on. And they basically said, you can stay as long as the government shut down and then we'll, mm -hmm. we'll have to process this paperwork in that period. And it was months. It was a long, long period where the, the government just was not operating you know, the, the stacks of paper on their desk got bigger and bigger and bigger. So when it did open up again, the guy in charge was just signing. And, you know, so, so whatever our lawyer did got just signed and pushed through, which meant that our organization was a Bosnian organization that didn't have to have oversight as a foreigner. Yeah. But I but I was the, the director. And so we didn't have to get approval for projects. So we could do literally whatever we wanted. Um, and have a legitimate reason to be in country so we could. So yeah. that's what God was oh, doing. Oh, like a miracle. <laughs> yes. He was like <laughs> shutting down governments and stuff. Um, and and in, in hindsight, I mean, for years, we, we, we were able to operate like that. And it gave us a ton of freedom to do exactly what our church sent us to do, which was to learn and to, to fall over the culture and country and, and understand what how the gospel, um, you know, can, can thrive there. And so, yeah, that was the first time where we finally mm -hmm. had some, some room to breathe. We were in a, the fourth largest city in the country um, and had some other, uh, other teammates. There had been some church plants there and some other work that had been um, done in that, in that city. But um, the, war, the war ended in 95. And so a lot of the missionaries that came right mm -hmm. after that were more focused on humanitarian aid. And then, you know, we, we landed in 2009-ish. And so by that point, like there was a huge wave of missionaries that had had left or was leaving. So once we started that, that organization, um, and, and without the pressure of having to prove that we did a bunch of projects, again, we're there to serve the people. And so we wanted, you know, if God gives me a resource, we operate out of the kingdom economy In the earthly economy, the more I make, the richer I am in the kingdom economy, the more I give away, the richer I am. And so we operated in that we had resources and we live in a, in a place with, you know, 40 to 70% unemployment um, and a lot, a lot of poverty. A lot of the young people are leaving to go to other countries in Europe to find employment. Um, and so we wanted to figure out how to both serve the physical need to, and, and also the spiritual need. And so some of the projects that we did were, you know, English classes that we did, but we did goat farming. We helped, you know, people with goat, goat farming projects or raspberry farming projects and some of the cool things that came out of that. So we tried everything with the heart of people in this country will open their house to you. Their hospitality is amazing. As soon as you get to religion, because they've mm -hmm. had wars over it since forever, they say, they have a saying, moya, moya, toya, toya. like mine's mm -hmm. mine, yours is yours. And that's good. Like you can be the worst or best Christian you want to be. 
and that's yours. I'll be the worst or best Christian Muslim. That's, that's mine. And let's not even talk about it. The easiest people to talk about God to is the ones that were on the more radical side. And so like, cause they're, they're hungry to talk about them, even if they disagree with you. And so, but we were trying to do as many things to get us in front of as many people as possible to start conversations, to see if they were spiritually seeking. And if so, then we would continue that. Mm -hmm. But that was exhausting and very, very few would, would, would want to, would want to talk at any level. And then once they did, then it was like coffee after coffee after coffee and, you know, the, the, the relationship building, which is, please don't hear me saying that's not important. You cannot have a discipling relationship yeah. without relation, you know, without that relational aspect. But you look at the city and think, okay, I know the road is narrow, but we got to fill this road up. And at the rate we're going here, it's just, it's not, I, I'm not satisfied. And I think it was a righteous unsatisfaction, not just a, hey, my, you know, my supporters are asking. It's a, like, these people need Jesus. And so we tried all kinds of different things. We did have one season where um, it was pretty dry. And we got invited to a conference down in Macedonia. It was a 24-7 prayer group that was holding this conference. And we say we're all about prayer. And we've done some really significant things with prayer, but mm -hmm. it's usually the first thing to go when you get busy. Sounds familiar. The true intentional prayer. And so we thought, hey, let's let's go to this conference and see if this can't give us a boost. And so we mm -hmm. went down and it was a holy blessed time. They did twenty they had a twenty-four room. So during the conference, prayer was going on constantly. Um, and you, you know, you'd sign up for your hour spot and you'd go and you'd walk in that room and you could just feel the presence of the spirit. It was so cool. And I thought, why can't we do this back there? Uh, I know we don't have as many people, so we'll just pray twice as much. The Moravians did it for 120 years. Like, come on, we, 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 we gotta be able to do this. They changed the world by doing that simple thing of starting and saying, God, you are who you say you are. And so I want to spend time with you and ask mm -hmm. boldly you know, at your throne for things. And so we, we came back and inspired by that. We, we had an office space downtown. We cut it in half and the, the better side, we called the Holy of Holies and, and turned it into a prayer room. And then the other half was our office. And we did, we would run at first just 24 hours. Uh, like maybe once a month we do a 24 hour deal where, you know, people would stay overnight and we do these things. It grew to 48. Uh, the longest one we did was, I want to say like four or five days, every time when we did something like that, something big would happen. Not always fun, but like you, you made ripples. Um, it one, one in particular, I remember the same teammate that prayed for the goats and the raspberries. Um, and we had a habit of, of praying boldly. God, you told us to ask boldly in your name. And so we will. And I remember one in particular, I was praying with him. And he was just frustrated. I've, he's, he said something like, I've knocked on so many doors, God, and zero of them have been open to me. I'm going to sit here until you send somebody to knock on my door. <laughs> I was like, dude, I, like, okay. Um, the very next day, he gets a phone call from a mutual contact that says, hey, I've got a guy. He's uh, from Saudi Arabia. He's lived here since the war. And he's part of an organization that I won't mention but he actually wants to talk to somebody about Jesus. Will you meet mm -hmm. with them? <laughs> Some of those were like, uh, okay, but it will be in a public place. Um, 
and we met with him and he had found Jesus through a televangelist. His perspective was still skewed, but loved Jesus through this televangelist that I won't name and was asking if he could get a Bible in Arabic. And so we got to meet with him and, and he still like, I can't get into all that story, but just the fact that, that my teammate prayed, God knock on my door. And like the very next day, it was a phone call. It wasn't a door knock, but that, and, and not just somebody, but like somebody that's way out there that has influence in places that like we couldn't even touch. And so that, that prayer room, I think really just aligned us with his heart and understanding I can knock on as many doors as I want to. I can try as many things as I want to, unless I'm really following him and understanding that this is his story, then we're only going to be able to work at our own power. And so that did lead to us meeting some people that were interested, people that had, had dreams and visions of Jesus, which again, in my context in Missouri, not super comfortable or familiar with that, but uh, was was talking to a guy that was pretty open, went to go pick him up one day to take him to a, a doctor's appointment. And that was the day I decided I'm going to give him a New Testament. And I had it in the back seat of my car. Stop. He opens the door, gets in, he's, and you know, greeting. He said, hey, Chris, I had a dream about you last night. And I was like, oh, yeah, what was the dream? And he said, I, I dreamt that when you picked me up today, you gave me a book. It's like, oh, okay. And I, I pointed to the book in the back. I said, is, is that maybe the book? And he said, that's, that's the exact book I saw in my dream. It has a, a symbol on it with a sheep and a, a staff and a ribbon banner. He said, that's, that's the book I saw in my dream. And so I said, well, that was the book I was going to give you today. So I think you should probably read it. And he ended up having to stay in the hospital overnight that night. I went to see him the next morning and he'd read the whole thing. He, he said, I, I didn't sleep. I read the whole thing. He loved Romans. He's like, I don't know what, but Ro he's a law student. He's like, Romans, like, what is this book? And so um, he was, he is one of this community that we did see come to faith during that season of really, I think our mm -hmm. best strategy was like prayer. Um, now God always opened doors for us to do after that, but like it was birthed out of prayer. Well, and I think too, I, cause I want to, I want to get on to your next endeavor of, of how you jumped into the social media world and connecting with those that were having questions and starting to discern. And one thing that you just mentioned was the, you know, having dreams. And I think that that's going to be a, a story that you're going to hear a lot um, over, over the next bit. So why don't you, why don't you transition into where you're, where you are now? I'll, I'll crunch a little bit. So I, I was going through burnout at the time. And so I had to take some rest. Uh, because I was broken and had been operating out of doing it for God as opposed to with him. And that's never a good recipe because you will, you will run out. Both my wife and I, my family and I went through a season of kind of figuring out where the holes were in our cup, <laughs> patching those up, getting filled back up and then coming back. And in that season had, uh, we'd heard about this team in North Africa that was using social media to find seekers online, but then they built a system to get them offline into a discipling relationship with somebody on the ground that could walk with them through the messy journey of, you know, finding and understanding Jesus and then walking with them. And I thought, man, if, if they can do it in that context, which is actually harder than ours, internet security, you know, radicalism, all that stuff, surely it can work here. Had a, did a couple iterations, one with a teammate and put an ad out 
And it was just boom, overwhelming. That was before we even knew the language very well. But it was proof that it did work, at least initially. I had another group that we put, I put together um, and gave it a shot and actually did find somebody that became a believer. Mm-hmm. And that's when I reached back out to my teammate up in the north that we had partnered with before. And he ran a social uh, uh, internet company, a, a tourism business, and had those skills. And, that. and so I reached that back out and said, hey, what if, you know, this team in North Africa is a part of our organization. What if we did that here? And he said, well, hey, why don't we start by dipping our toes into doing like a prayer website first to figure out how we can work together again after our initial season and start there. And if, if we can do that together, then let's jump in. And so we did. And this guy's wired for this stuff. So we started with Pray for Bosnia and gathered a community around that of workers that would then get other people around the world praying for Bosnia. And it worked and it, and it, it saw some really cool success. Um, and yeah, the numbers on that are pretty cool to see how many people across the world are praying for us. People that we didn't even know, uh, some lady in Uruguay reached out and said, Hey, I saw one of your videos. It was in Portuguese and I've always had a heart for Bosnia. And like, we didn't translate it into Portuguese. I don't know how it got there, but she then translated it into Spanish and got a network of churches in Uruguay praying for us. And so just really cool stories that came out of that, which honestly, I think led into then the unity that we had in building this system where he was in a city in the north, I was in the city in the middle. We created a month-long campaign. Well, first of all, we, we interviewed as many believers as we could in Bosnia to figure out how seekers were coming from not knowing Jesus to knowing him and walking with him. And we found some common threads. One of those was dreams and visions. And music was another one. There, there was a few common threads that we thought, okay, then now we can create content, specific content, around those targets to see if there's other people like them. And so we decided to start with uh, dreams and visions of the man in white, the man in sandals, or the light behind the door, or the man at the well. All of them had some vision like that. And so we had a crew from a church in in Nebraska that came over to to film some stuff with us. We created a 30-day campaign that we were going to run during Ramadan. It was respectful, but like pretty hard-hitting. Of are you one of those that has seen the man in white? And then the images that we thought they they might relate to. And we knew what was going to go out on day one, day two, day three, day 20. And we had a local that was going to respond to any messages that we came in. We had a system where we could mail Bibles or deliver Bibles. But the goal was to find people that wanted to talk, not just to watch the videos. And in the first 20 days of running ads on a Facebook page that led to a website, we had more social uh, interaction with spiritually seeking people in that first 20 days than we had in the first 10 years combined. Wow. We ran and we ran it in one city of, you know, half a million people. And it was on, it, it just saturated the whole country. And people would write in and say things like, how did you know I had that dream? That like, that's legitimately the dream. I saw that, that image in my dream. Wow. Can you tell me more about it? Wow. Uh, we had, we had, in that first 20 days that we actually had to stop at day 20. So we didn't even run the full first 30 days for good reasons. Um, But in that first 20 days, we had 10 people request a Bible. Again, I'd lived there for 10 years. I'd never had anybody ask me for a Bible. And these people were asking, and we did set up two, two face-to-face meetings with people who wanted to know more. And so that was enough for us to be like, okay, we know that God said his, his word does not come back empty. 
And so if we can, in our content, put pieces of scripture in it, it's not going to come back empty. And also that the church is built on the testimony of believers. And so part of the content that we put out there has testimonies of people that have been transformed. I can sow as much seed as I can in a day, going to people and meeting them. This thing does it while I'm sleeping and it does it times a million in places where I can't go or there's no, no witness. And it was cool because, you know, with all the social media analytics, you can see where people are watching stuff. And just to see that map, I mean, just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Whether they're engaging with it like I want them to or not, I can see that they watch that full video in this village over here or in that city over there. And if I never get to meet them, at least, at least they got something that maybe somebody else could, you know, follow up on. So then we were able to reach out to other workers, other Christians in the country and say, hey, in your city last week, one out of 20 people heard a testimony or saw the, the video that we made about the, the woman at the well or the prodigal son story. One in 20. So go, go down on the street and figure out which one of those 20 people are, are ready to accept this. And that was just with the first ad. So now we're like a large majority of the, of the population has had the, the soil of their heart tilled by something that comes with God's promise on it. And so that's the reason I'm sitting in my basement right now working on this still. I would much rather be in a smoky cafe in Bosnia, but if I can find a tool and help other people with a tool to find those people, then, you know, praise be to the Lord. One of the drivers for me is I've met those people on the ground and I love them. They're my heroes that, that fight through that stuff and have such a passion for these cultures that they've adopted. If I can help them find those seekers, mm-hmm. then by all means, let us do that. And God has, has blessed this ministry. So since uh, we had to move outside of Bosnia, um, came home, got cleaned up, and then trying to figure out with my two kids, do I go back into that? And so we realized, hey, we're running this from different cities into different cities. As long as I've got an internet connection and God's favor, I can do this from anywhere. And so the whole team ended up transitioning to Budapest or Budapest, depends on if, if you say it right or wrong. Um, and so it just gave us a platform to really reach out and be able to offer our services to other people. But very quickly after Bosnia, Croatia reached out and said, Hey, can you help us do this? And our first answer was no. Like, we're a tiny team. We're super overwhelmed. No, God said, Hey, you built this thing super reproducible. You know, if you know the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, just ask and I'll give you what you need. And so we ended up saying yes to them. And then Serbia reached out and we were like, no, and then God said the same thing. So we said, yes, that's right. When COVID hit and the team in Serbia was pretty robust. They had like 12 people, mixed missionaries and internationals or nationals. And we had said yes to training them. And like the week after that, COVID locked down everything. And so they were all in their apartments. The team leader reached out and said, hey, I've got a team of people at their computers right now. Tell us what to do. We want this thing up and running by Monday. It was Wednesday. And I was like, okay, it took us nine months. I don't think we can do it in five days. But uh, Chris and I got on a whiteboard and kind of whiteboard out, okay, what would it take to get a team like this that's fully committed to do this thing? And it took them a week and a half and they did it in a week and a half because they had that team fully focused on it. In the first nine months, they saw 50 people come to faith and 250 more in some kind of a discipling relationship on the way. And the the year previous, they had four. And so this thing is just, it it is catalytic. Part of that is that team is a praying team as well. Like Mm -hmm. that's just the DNA of who they are. And they hit the streets. We always tell people this, like, you know, we're fishing, we're fishers of men. We fish with a pole. 
don't stop that. But let, we have a net that you can also throw out while you're fishing with that pole. Let us help you throw out a net and see what we can catch then. And so they were already great fishers. And so we just added a, a, a tool and they run with it. We're in 12 countries now. Our heart is to be all over Europe in every country of Europe running social media initiatives to find seekers and connect them with people that can truly disciple them mm -hmm. uh, into a relationship with Jesus. Well, Chris, one of the things that I was really hoping for when Ashley and I started talking about doing this podcast mm -hmm. was to expose as many people as possible to mission work being done in as many different ways as possible by as many different people as possible in as many different contexts as possible. And this has been a fascinating story. What an incredible journey. And I'm going to be thinking about this model that you guys are using. Uh, it's just, a, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what I think is the coolest thing about it. And it just probably, I'm sure this has occurred to you already, but I was, thinking about where we started today and you sharing the story of your, I think it was the second trip you went on the one to Taiwan where the teenager had the phone, had the access, had the tools and still hadn't heard the name of Jesus. And here you are, however many, many years later with a, a way of reaching out to that kid in the way that he's going to get it. And I just think that's fascinating that, you know, it was a pretty circuitous route, but that, that the model that you all have been called to is exactly the kind of model that that first situation that sort of got things stirred up in you needed. I just, that is, well, I guess that's what God was doing. I'm embarrassed to say that was the first time I actually put that together. Where were you? Where were you back then to, to fast forward some of this stuff? <laughs> Uh, the process too, though, right? The process was necessary. Um, that's been another thing. Absolutely, the, yeah. I think God is saying, like, I, I want to give you more fruit. Are you ready for to, like, again, he's yoked with you, but are you ready for that? And so, like, I, I have to admit that sometimes I've said, I, I'm not. And I, I don't know that I can be faithful if you, if you up that right now. Um, I've had a picture, picture of Jesus sometimes uh, come to me where he's holding a scalpel in one hand and an axe in the other. He doesn't really say much, but it's just kind of like, hey, which one do you want me to use today? And I'll admit, like a lot of times I'll say, like, neither one today. And he'll just gently put it behind his back. He won't let go of him because like, the other thing he says is, do you, re do you really want to hold on to that stuff? Like, well, no, I don't. But mm -hmm. just, I don't know if I'm ready today for you to go to work with an ax or a scalpel for that matter. Uh, there's days I think he needs to show up with a chainsaw, to be honest with you. <laughs> Amen. I want to wrap up, but I just want to, the one question I still have is broken banquet. Why do you like it so much? I think just for that last little bit, we talked about just the, the journey that it's been, even with the preparation that we had before, I still got on that plane thinking I was going to go make a difference. I felt like that was a gift I could give to him. I truly don't think it was like, Hey, I, I want to earn my salvation but it was this, it was still off in that I wanted to give him something. And it wasn't that he wanted to break me. It was just that he wanted to have me understand that even at my best, it's not what, it, what is needed. The best moments on the field were when we were at a complete desperation level where we were saying things like, God, 
not I'm going to give up if you don't, but it was, I give up and it has to be you. I'm here, but I'm, I'm completely broken. And then that, that I love the banquet analogy there because it is definitely, he has prepared a table for you in those moments. But if you show up with any pride mm-hmm. or even good intention, it's like you don't get invited in because he is the one that's going to get the glory. Even just having the word banquet in it is a good reminder on the hard days of the table is already set, but it's got empty chairs. Our job is just to make the invitation and walk with people on that road. And so thanks guys for yeah. listening and asking questions. It's just a reminder of what God's up to and he's always at work. Well, thank you. You've been so generous with your time and with your story. And it really has been fascinating, I think, for both of us. And I can't wait to get this all put together and, and for for the folks that have been listening along with us to to get to meet you and, and learn more about what, what you guys have been through and what you're doing now. It's it's wonderful. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for being on the Broken Banquet Podcast. You bet. Bless you guys. All right, Chris. We'll be in touch. This was awesome. Right. Thank you. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.